The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these forty years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that in this message, you would not only give me the words to say that bring this passage to life, that help us, those of us as believers who see this passage, to see your glory in it. Please give me those words, Father, for those words that might be in my head that would not be helpful to that glorious end. I pray that you would um, restrain me. For those here who may be without you, I pray that these verses would create a hunger in them that can only be filled by partaking of the bread of life, your Son. I pray that as we study these ancient people in the Exodus, that we'll see more of you. As is our prayer each week, that we would catch a glimpse, that we would be changed by seeing your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It takes time to get to know someone, does it not? It takes time. Uh, if you have friends, if you have classmates in school that you meet at the beginning of school in September, it takes time to get to know them. You have that surface relationship at first where you might uh, share a little bit about yourself, but it takes time to get to know somebody. For those of us who have been married a long time, for those of you who may have been married a few years, think back to that first week. Um, there are folks in our prayer, in our community group that tell a wonderful story of a a re- remarkable fight during their honeymoon. It's an awesome story. You can ask Doug and Jan about that. They'll, they'll tell you. But I know that in our first um, year of marriage, the getting to know you process goes awesomely and without any problems whatsoever. It doesn't. That, that's sarcasm. It, it, it's difficult getting to know you. And there's a, as I was preparing this message, um, this song, this show tune came into my head from The King and I, getting to know you, getting to know more about you. I can sing it if you'd like. 
I won't, but that song is about getting to know someone. It takes time. You, you, you've heard the sayings, you, you should walk a mile in his shoes, walk a mile in my shoes before you judge me, before you know me. And it's not literally put your feet into my shoes, but it is walk where I walk, get to know me. In, in arguments and in, in, uh, fights and disputes, we might say, you can't say that to me. You don't know me. I mean, that, that's usually where the relationship is having some major trouble. But getting to know someone is very important for building trust, for being vulnerable, for sharing things, even within our church community, to be able to share things that you want other people to pray about, to admit what everyone knows is that we are sinners, that we are broken, but to admit that to another person requires knowledge, requires trust. And here, we are 45 days out of Egypt. We are 45 days since the Red Sea. And this is the beginning of a long journey for the Hebrews, the Israelites. And this is the beginning of the process of getting to know their God. Remember, they were 430 years as slaves. 430 years where I dare say, their relationship to God was not that close. And God said, I have heard your cry. I'm going to take you out of Egypt. I'm going to liberate you and free you. I'm going to take you to a good land. But in this process, you're going to get to know me. And here today, we have a clear vision of that. First century commentator mentioned, um, uh, writes on the purpose of the wandering in the wilderness. And I found this very very apropos. After the Red Sea crossing, Moses, by the command of God, led out the people of the Hebrews into the wilderness and leaving that shortest road, which leads from Egypt to Judea. Instead, he led the people through long windings of the wilderness that by the discipline of 40 years, the novelty of a changed manner of life might root out the evils which had clung to them by a long-continued familiarity with the customs of the Egyptians. Have you ever wondered why the wandering? I mean, that's a little look ahead. They're, they're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Why God did that? The point is that God is getting to know His people, and His people are getting to know Him by teaching them in difficult situations more about Himself, who He is, and what He does. He reveals the glory of His character. So if you turn back to Exodus chapter 16, we're going to step through the text together. We're going to look at the sections in the text in this chapter. Um, I, I have five sections that kind of stand out to me, and then we're going to draw some applications from that. I hope that as we read, you'll begin, develop the habit of reading Old Testament history is not just about the quail. It's not just about the manna. It's not just about throwing a tree into a pool of water and having that bitter water turn sweet. What does it say about God? So the first section is verses 1 through 3 of chapter 16, where the people grumbled outrageously. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. I, I call this the, the people grumbled outrageously because it is 
revisionist history to the extreme. The, the entire congregation is grumbling, and it's interesting to note their solidarity. The, the text says the whole congregation. This is not just one or two naysayers, people causing trouble, you know, writing a petition, writing a blog article about how bad it is out there. The whole congregation is grumbling in solidarity. The, the whole congregation is partaking in, in what the Hebrew translation for grumble is, is even stronger. It's outright rebellion against Moses and Aaron. I mean, we can see here, we can see in the previous chapter last week, we can see throughout the history that we're going to study in Exodus that whining and a spirit of complaining was Israel's besetting sin. These are outrageous accusations, are they not? Outrageous accusations that Moses and Aaron plotted to bring these people out into the desert to kill them, to commit homicide or genocide if they were trying to kill them all. The the memories of Egypt not being... I think I would have remembered the bricks. I would have remembered the bricks without straw and trying to and, and building what I assume were the pyramids. But instead, they remember sitting by the meat pots. Now, I like meat pots, whatever they are. I want one. I want to go to there. But they, they remember sitting by meat pots and eating bread to the full. Not exactly the life of a slave. But that grumbling spirit that they had, it's, it's, it's a lesson to us. That grumbling spirit is not caused by outward circumstances. A spirit of complaining within us is not merely triggered and put on us by outward circumstances, but instead it reveals the inward condition of our hearts. We exaggerate when we complain, do we not? When, um, when you're in the middle of a cold, a sickness, uh, it's, it's interesting to, to have kids that are growing up, and I know my family is unable to be here, and I have to tread carefully because there are people here that will tell them what I said. But I know that when there are people in your, in, in your family who may get sick and, and say, I wish I were dead, you're like, no, you don't mean that. I mean, being dead is worse than having a runny nose. It really is. Um, you know, being unable to, to breathe, or even in the middle of the cough that I had, the great cough of October, I, I did not wish for death. But sometimes when we have a complaining spirit, number one, we exaggerate. But number two, we also need to recognize who we're directing that at. And if you look in verse, jump ahead in verse 7 and 8. Verse 7 and 8, Moses and Aaron are telling the people of Israel that God has heard their grumbling. And he says, in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. This is verse 7. And, and Moses adds this, For what are we that you grumble against us? And then Moses goes on to explain what's going to happen in the evening and in the morning. And in verse 8, in the middle of verse 8, he says, The Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Their grumbling, their complaining, have theological meaning. It's not just harmless venting or collateral damage. That, that happened to land on God's representatives. This was a serious, rebellious attack on God's representatives, the most serious to date. I mean, you can kind of see in this passage, if you read it carefully, Moses is speaking to the people. But at one point, Moses says, Aaron, tell the people. And I don't think it's too much of a stretch to remember, why did God put Aaron next to Moses? Because Moses could be timid in his speech. 
And this may have been a, a case where the people were attacking so much that Moses reverted back to that fearful, Aaron, speak for me. Speak what God has said. Perhaps Aaron, Moses was deferring to him because this was a very difficult time for Moses and Aaron. But when, we, when someone speaks God's truth to us, and I'm not talking about using God's word as a club, and I'm not talking about someone um, twisting God's word and taking it out of context and using it against you, but when someone truly speaks God's word to you and to me in love, anger towards those people is not right. It is not a, a correct biblical reaction. But haven't you noticed that when we are unhappy with our circumstances, when we are unhappy with what's being said to us, we attack the person talking to us. We attack those who are closest to us. I believe there's a psych, uh, psychiatric, psychological term called displacement, where you, instead of attacking the problem, you attack the person closest to you. And I want us to ask ourselves, when we grumble and when we complain, to whom are we directing our grumbling? To whom are we directing our complaint about our circumstance in life? To whom are we directing our complaint and our unhappiness? In grammar, I had to look this up because grammar has been a long time ago, but there's a, there are certain sentence structures where the subject of the sentence is understood. It's an understood you, right? Okay. It's an understood you where you don't say you blank. It's just, it's an understood you. I think that when we complain, sometimes, well, you know, I think it's a good thing to ask each other, ask yourself, who am I mad at? And is it the understood God that I'm actually mad at? Who's allowing these things to happen to me? Who is ordaining this painful time for me? God takes complaining personally. He does hear, he has Moses say, you know, what are we? Who, why are you complaining to Moses and Aaron? Your complaint is against God. And God takes complaining personally, a complaining spirit, because he knows that we are finding fault with him. And that is something that we need to learn and be very aware of and when, when we are speaking out against our circumstances. Let's look how God responds to the outrageous complaint. Hopefully I've convinced you that the complaint that the Israelites said to them about we used to have meat pots and bread and now you brought us out here to die. It's no more outrageous than some of the things that we complain about. Some of the things that we shake our fist in the face of God and say, why did you allow this to happen? But how does God respond in verse 4? God responds graciously. God doesn't say, you need to shut up these complaining people. You need to tell them to stop grumbling or I'm going to strike them down. God says in verse 4, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And then he tells them what's going to happen. The people will gather a day's portion. And then the, in, in the sixth day, they're going to prepare the twice as much as what they gather daily. And we'll, we'll look at that. But God uses this as a teaching time. It's really interesting. It's a very supernatural, divine thing. Um, how, uh, oh boy, I take my life in my hands. How many women here know how to change a tire? Or how many know how to call AAA? <laughs> okay. So, um, I'm not sure if Lisa knows how to change a tire, but I think that if we were to have a flat tire, that would not be a good time for me to teach her on the side of Highway 26. Say, so, you know what? We have a need right now, and this is a really good time for you to learn 
how to change a tire. But God is seeing his people here and they're complaining about we're going to starve to death. You know, who's going to provide for us? You brought us out here to die. God's not even in the conversation. God's saying, this is a great time to teach them of my providence. When they are doubting me, when they are complaining directly against me, that's a good time to teach. It may not be, I I hope you're correlating my, my tire changing example with, it's very interesting that God would use this time. But he's so gracious and he's going to use this as a teaching time. That which they wavered in became the lesson for this part of the journey. They were wavering and not knowing who God was. They were wavering and not trusting in his providence and his providing for them. But God responds by starting to teach them a lesson. And so what is he going to teach them? We see in verses 6 through 12, Moses and Aaron speak to the people what God's going to do. And there's a significant structure to this promise in verses 6 through 12. Um, verse 6, At evening you shall know it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. Um, in verse 8, the, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, uh, you're going to see God's glory. So the structure is, in the evening you're going to get meat. In the morning you're going to get bread. And later on in this passage, we know that the meat was quail and that the bread was manna. But here we see the promise made. And I want to point out the significance of the meaning behind the structure. Look at those words in in verse 6. In the evening, you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out. You shall know that it was the Lord that brought you out. Remember, they're coming out of Egypt. What kind of religion did Egypt have? polytheistic, many, many gods, the God of the frogs, the God of the water, the God of the sun, many, many. So this is a message worth repeating and emphasizing for the Israelites. You're going to know that it was I, the Lord, that brought you out. You're going to know that God is providing. And we can look ahead and see that catching quail by the hand, that's not normal. Okay, I mean, yes, quail had migratory patterns and the Egyptians could capture them in nets, but to have the, the manner of quail that we see described here and later in Numbers, where the quail are piled up a couple meters high, I mean, that's supernatural bird behavior that's happening. God is providing that for them. So in the, morning, in the evening, he said, you're, you're going to know. What's he say about the morning? Verse 7, in the morning, you're going to see. In the evening, you're going to know. And in the morning, you're going to see the glory of the Lord. Now, let's remember, we... They've been following what as they've been walking around the wilderness? They've been following a cloud in the day and a pillar of fire by night. It's one of those things where, you know, when they lay down to sleep, they can just look up and say, pillar of fire. Now, we, we don't see that today. We don't see that exact physical manifestation today. It's kind of hard to believe that after time that might become blasé where you're like, Oh yeah, we're, that pillar of fire is you know, directing us. That cloud is directing us, and that's just normal. You know, every every people group has that sort of thing. That's not normal. That's supernatural. But yet, God was going to show Himself even more than that cloud, even more than that pillar. And God was going to show His glory. He's going to reveal His character. He was going to show that He cares for His people. The glory of the Lord is the manifestation of His person. The glory of the Lord is the essence of his character. 
John MacArthur says, The glory of the Lord, glory is to the Lord what wet is to water. Glory is to the Lord what heat is to fire. It's part of his essence, of his character. It's of his, his very um, person. And God is saying, you're going to see in this manna. You're going to see in this bread. You're going to see my glory. God promises to provide, and in that providing, he is teaching more about himself. As we continue stepping through this passage, so God makes that promise in verses 6 through 12. And in verse 13 through 16, God fulfills the promise. So the, they wake up in the morning and they see, see this mysterious substance on the ground. Um, later in the passage, we see it's white. It's like coriander seed. Um, the taste of it's like um, vanilla wafers, I guess. Wafers made with honey. Um, they name it manna, which is, sounds very similar to the Hebrew word for what is it. If, if we were to see that today, it'd be like we would call it, huh? It, it, what is this? Um, we don't know what it is. So, so manna, it, obviously supernatural, not a naturally occurring thing. And um, the, it was provided to them, but there were parameters, right? God told them, gather as much as you can eat each day. Gather one omer, which is about a half gallon. So I'm, I'm, there's probably some sort of... Well, I'm not going to go to what, what manna is because the title of the message is the meaning behind the manna, not the substance of the manna. But the manna, they were to gather up like about half a gallon of manna each day. On the sixth day of the week, they were to gather twice as much because on the seventh day, that manna was not going to fall. In this, we see the beginning of the, the establishment of the Sabbath, the principle of the Sabbath. Back in Genesis, when God created the world, on the seventh day, he rested. We can look ahead to Exodus 20, where we see the Ten Commandments being given. And there's a commandment, remember the Sabbath. So the Sabbath was not just given at the Ten Commandments time. It was given before then. Remember the Sabbath, meaning that principle had already been put in place. And I I believe here we can see it strongly being established. That seventh day, man is not going, God's not going to work. And you're not to work. God's not going to put the manna out. You're supposed to take a day of solemn rest. This is not just about people taking a break. It's not just God giving the Israelites a break from their food gathering. This is God himself observing a Sabbath. And therein, I believe, we can rightly say is a lesson for all of us. God ordains that we rest on the seventh day. God ordains that this seventh day is a day to be taken to the Lord. And we'll look in more detail at those verses in this passage that talk about that. But So you can see the manna being provided. It's very interesting. Remember, this is the part of the day where we're going to see His glory, where the Israelites are going to see His glory. So they have this substance on the ground. looks like frost. It can be gathered up into an omer per person each day. Um, they're not supposed to gather more than that. They're only supposed to take what they need for that day. And on the sixth day, they're going to gather twice as much. This, these are all very interesting things that, that would be attached to that phrase, you're going to see my glory. But I hope to, to explain that as we go forward. But how do the people respond? So, so in the morning, the manna falls. In the evening, the quail come. I mean, the focus of the passage is on the manna. But look in verse 19. Verse 19 through 21, we see the first disobedience. 
verse 19, Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. Don't keep it overnight. Verse 20, but they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Some of the people heard the command of the Lord, saw the supernatural quail, the supernatural manna on the ground, and their first response was to not listen to the parameters that God had put on it. Their first response was to hoard it and keep it until morning. And they ended up with maggot-ridden manna. And Moses was angry, as, as I guess he had every right to be. Like, can't you listen to simple instructions? And then if we keep looking, we see the second disobedience regarding the Sabbath. In, in verse number 27, let's back up to verse 26. On verse 26, Moses reminds them, Six days you shall gather it, that on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And this time the Lord says to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. This is not a simple, harmless gesture of, I'm just going to go out to check just in case there's still manna. This is, God, I don't, I'm not, I don't trust you. I don't believe what you're saying. I don't believe there's not going to be manna on the ground on the seventh day. I'm going to go look for myself. And the Lord speaks to Moses directly about this. Mo, the Lord says, and, and Moses tells the people, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Now, the structure of our messages through Exodus is not merely to look at the story and try to draw some some artificial parallel between manna, bread, meat, birds, and, and eating bread or meat every day. That's not the point of, of this passage. Our, our point instead is to see the point of the story in Scripture as a whole, that is to see what this story teaches us about God. That's why I entitled this message, The Meaning Behind the Manna. The point isn't that doughy goodness fell from the sky every day. For me, I, you know, it would be great to have buttermilk biscuits on the ground every day and, and be able to eat that. But there is definitely a deeper meaning, a purpose to why God ordained that his people, the Israelites, God ordained that they would be experiencing hunger. We read that in Deuteronomy. We read that in the spoiler, right? That God ordained that they would be hungry, that they would be learning humility, that he would be testing them. And therein is where we need to focus our attention in these final minutes so we can see and we can learn what God has for us today. What was God trying to teach his people then in Exodus? And what does God want us to know today? We worship the same God. What are we to learn So look back to verse 4. I have two main application areas. First of all, God tests his people, and God provides for his people. God tests his people, and God provides for his people. (coughs) In verse 4, God tells Moses what he's going to do. I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them that I may test them whether they walk in my law or not. Why does God test them here? 
If you remember back to chapter 15, the situation with the water and not having water to drink. In chapter 15, Chad taught us last week that God was testing their faith. In the face of thirst and extreme physical discomfort, God tested their faith and showed himself to be faithful. They began to understand that this God who brought them out would also be faithful to his promises to take care of them, provide for them. So here in in chapter 16, he's saying, I'm going to test them whether they're going to walk according to my word, whether they're going to walk in my law. If we look ahead to Exodus 20, we again see this sort of word in Exodus 20, 20, about testing. Do not fear, Moses says, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. In chapter 20 of Exodus, he's testing them so that they will not sin because they fear God, that the fear of God is in them. In our opening reading in Deuteronomy 8, um, we saw in verse 2 that Moses wanted the people to remember that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. God tested the Israelites, and God tests us. God tests us. Perhaps sometimes we wish it were not so. But walking with God does not mean there will be no suffering. Walking with God does not mean that the amount of dollars in your bank account are going to rise. There is no correlation between our standing before God and the amount of money that we have. The devoted Christ follower gets cancer. The servant of God loses his job. Sometimes even parents that are are seeking to bring up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord may have a rebellious child that departs from the faith. And I believe that God in that time may be saying, it's not up to you. I mean, you can be the perfect parent, right? And have a child that departs. And it's sometimes when we parent, I mean, I'm going a little bit deep here. Sometimes when we parent, we're taking God's sovereignty away from him saying, it's up to me. If I had only spent more time with that, with that child and, you know, and taught them more, I could have kept them from making that choice. No, God is sovereign and God tests us in different ways. And I think the key question, the right response, is why is God testing you? Here we see that God tested his people to see if they would obey. Here we see God tested his people so that they would see his glory. He allowed them to be hungry. I mean, it's, it, we can't really fathom this because to make someone hungry, to withhold, to put them in a situation where they're hungry seems extremely cruel. But God's ways are not our ways, and he did this for his glory. For them to be hungry for a while and then to see God provide brought him glory. And it was for their greater good. I mean, their hunger may have been, um, uh, I can only think of, uh, may have been uh, diminished. Their hunger may have been diminished for a day, but they might not have seen and trusted and gotten to know God in a way that they would when they were hungry. You know, this Deuteronomy verse, Deuteronomy 8.2, I think this perhaps is the most common purpose of testing, where God is testing to know what is in our hearts. God tests His people, and I think when God tests us in whatever way 
You know, I've mentioned a few examples, but when God tests us, it is not because he turned his head and got caught by surprise by a thing that came into our lives. God is testing us for a purpose, to bring him glory. And I think the best response we can have is, is Father, why? Not, not, not why did you do this to me, but how are you going to get glory in me? How are you going to get, going to get glory in me losing a child in a stillborn delivery? How are you going to get glory by, by me losing my ministry? Um, you know, the, I don't understand why this church situation turned out this way. I'm, I, I had the best of intentions for this church body, but you are moving me on. Why are you doing that? Why did you have me take this job if only to take it away from me? God, what do you have for me? These are difficult. Let me not be trite and don't let me be... A pedantic in saying that we should ask God why. These are difficult things to say. But God, we can trust that God is seeking to bring himself glory. And in that, in our suffering, there's meaning. In that pain, in that testing, we have purpose. So secondly, God also provides for his people. God tests his people, but God provides for his people. A gracious God responded to the grumbling by providing for his people. These, these food elements, this, this quail, this manna falling from the sky, these were reminders of God's provision. God clearly stated the purpose of the provision to be beyond physical nourishment. He didn't say, in the morning you're going to get manna and you're not going to be hungry anymore. In the evening, you're going to get quail, and it's going to taste so good, you should roast it a little bit. No, God said, in the morning, I'm going to give you manna, and you're going to see my glory. In the evening, you're going to get quail, and you're going to know that I led you out. You see, the point wasn't just to meet their physical needs, significant and real, though they might be. God saw their need. God provided for their need. But even better, he taught them about himself, even as he was providing for them. But can't we see ourselves in the way the people responded? You know, the people responded by pushing the limits of God's parameters. God said, take what you need. Take what you need each day. What did some of the people do? What would I do? I would take two omers, whatever an omer container looked like. I'm like, what? you know, two is better than one. How many people, when they go through an all-you-can-eat breakfast buffet, take one piece of bacon? No, we take more, and then we force ourselves to eat it because our parents will say, you know, don't waste food. But we take more than we need. Here, God clearly stated, take what you need. Do not hoard. They pushed the limits of God's parameters. They tested him. They also questioned God's statements. You know, he said there's not going to be manna on the ground on the seventh day. What did some of them do? What would some of us do? At least we'd peek outside and say, hmm, okay, I guess God was telling the truth. What an affront that is to God's sovereignty. I mean, no doubt in your personal relationships, in your homes, at work, if you're, t- if you're going to tell somebody, I can't think of an example, um, you know, I, I shut the garage before, before he went to bed. If, if your spouse then goes to check to see if you shut the garage, it's a little, bit, a little bit of an insult, unless you have a track record of saying that you shut the garage and didn't close it, actually. In that case, is just loving, double-checking. But here, this is wrong. To question God's statements about the manna on the seventh day, to go out, they questioned 
they push the limits. You see, God in His providing, there's a real divine meaning in this when He provides exactly what they need. He provides no more and no less. There's a real interesting thing. Look in the, in the text, Exodus 16, verse 17. You know, I'm talking about this Omer thing and I'm, because I found out it's about a half gallon. I'm, I'm holding like a gallon jug. But Exodus 16, verse 17, the people did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. It's almost like that no matter how much they gathered when they came to the measuring point and they poured it in, it was miraculously an omer. God gave them what they needed miraculously. God gave them no more and no less than was needed. Think, if you will, to the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Not the Costco bread. Not like bread enough for two months. But give us this day our daily bread. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Jot this down. I'll read it for you. 2 Corinthians 8, 13-15. Paul also refers to this. Um, for I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. Paul is talking about giving to others. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much, and he's talking about this passage in Exodus, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. So there's a couple things we can learn here. One, God gives us much so that we can bless others. Oftentimes we hoard that. We seek our own will and our own agenda. And we seek to use His provision for our own gain. God provides for us. But so often, so many of us take credit for that provision. We take credit for the jobs we have because we studied hard and we went years to school and we're... We dedicated ourselves to our craft, and that's why God provides, because we worked hard. That's wrong. There's a purpose in His providing. There's a purpose in why God provides our daily bread. There's a purpose for why God told the Israelites, take an omer, nothing more, nothing less, to accentuate our need for His provision each day, so that we might be reminded each day of our always dependent state. This is not because he's a cruel God. This is because God wants us to teach us that in him only can we be truly satisfied. Through him only can we find our peace and our contentment. Our blessings should not be and cannot be attributed to our own planning. What we have, what God provides to us, should not be attributed to our own budgeting and our skill in hunting and gathering. Our culture of consumption, of materialism, this is the time of year where we really see that, of buying things to excess, these are not aligned with God's view of being daily dependent on Him. Our very bread and our meat, our most basic needs for sustenance, these we find given to us by a gracious God. And I want to tie in this establishment of the Sabbath. No doubt we're going to talk about it in a few weeks when we hit the Ten Commandments. But God is clearly establishing the principle of that seventh day 
of taking a day of rest, what the text says, of taking a day to Him. The principle of the Sabbath is more important than, I'd say, the prescriptive formula of the Old Testament law. But we we see this principle of the Sabbath reinforced in the New Testament by the day of worship where the believers gather together on the first day of the week. But I'm not here to talk about whether it should be on the the seventh day, Saturday, or whether it should be on the first day of the week. There are different ways that we New Testament believers can disregard the Sabbath. One is to take that day and make it frivolous. This is my day. I've been working hard all week. This is my day. Another way, though, I think that ties into this passage. Let me ask the question, how does our attitude towards a Sabbath day reflect our own lack of trust in God's provision? How does our attitude towards taking a Sabbath day reflect our own lack of trust in God's provision I can't take time off. I can't give to God because if I, I can't afford to. Have you ever thought that? Like, I've got to work harder on this day or I'm going to lose my job. I won't get promoted. I won't be able to provide my family with the standard of living that we're, we've become accustomed to. Our disregard of the Sabbath, of taking a day of rest, of taking a day of worship and devoting it to God, Yes, sometimes it's about frivolous pursuits. We'll leave that for another message. But sometimes it is about a lack of trust in God. As if our provision and our health are the things that we hold dear here on earth with our own earthly economy. As if those come second to God's command to take a Sabbath day. John Calvin wrote on the Sabbath He says the pursuit of holiness is not confined, should not be confined within a single day, but it extends through the whole course of our life until completely dead to ourselves, we are filled with the life of God. We still need to regularly observe days for corporate worship as well as physical and mental rest from labor. These reasons for the Sabbath ought not to be relegated to the ancient shadows, Calvin says, but are equally applicable to every age. So be aware of that. And I think this might be a problem more for men um, or people who are the primary provider. When we start looking at our time on this earth, our days, our weeks, our years, and especially as you get older, and it's like, how many years of earning power do I have left to be able to provide for my family and you know the American ideal of retirement? These are not biblical terms. These, you know, when we start to worry, like, well, I need to take a, another job we, we sometimes take God out of that equation. If you were to put it in the terms of a budget, budgets are good. You know, the ant puts up stuff for the winter. Budgets are good, but I mean, we, many people don't have that budgeted category for you know, paycheck, odd jobs, God's going to provide. We don't have that column that says God's going to provide. We kind of take him out of our earthly planning. And I think that in this principle of God providing daily provision, just what we need, it's something that we Americans can really take. You know, when, when we're taught, buy to excess, gather, hoard to excess, spend. God's principles are, I'm going to provide what you need. You're going to remember that you're dependent on me, not because I'm cruel, 
but because I'm a loving God. And you're going to see my glory in how I provide to you. In the introduction, I said the, the main point of this passage, and I don't think I emphasize it enough, but the main point of this passage is that God is getting to know his people and his people are getting to know him. He's doing this by teaching them in difficult situations. He teaches who he is and what he does. He reveals the glory of his character. Through his provision, through his testing, through even the establishment of the Sabbath principle of taking a day of rest, the Israelites are learning more about their God. And not just them, but we also learn more about our God. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he's talking about everything that happened in the Exodus. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10:11, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Just like the Israelites in Exodus, God teaches in difficult situations. Take a moment. Can you consider lessons that you've learned through God's testing? Think back to the times in your life where you were very dependent on God, where God forced you through His leading in your life, through times. What did God have for you to learn? And tragically, perhaps, we can also remember perhaps lessons that we failed to learn lessons that we missed, times when God brought us through circumstances for His glory, yet we responded not by saying, God, what do you have for me? But how can I get myself out of this? How can I gather two omers? How can I, on the seventh day, figure out where am I going to get my daily bread? God is revealing His glory to us, and He is reminding us that He, the Lord our God, is providing for us. He wants to get to... He wants us to get to know Him beyond just being a God who saves us from hell. God wants, to know, wants us to know that He is also a God who cares, who provides, who wants to provide for us each day what we need. He knows our character. He knows our need for loving testing so that we might obey Him, so we might learn that fear of the Lord, so that we might see what's in our hearts and have that come forth so that He might transform us. He institutes a day of rest for us so that we might trust Him weekly to provide for us, even on that day when we're not working to provide for ourselves. But God also wants us to remember His provision each day. Remembering is a very important part of the culture here in Exodus, and we can see that if you look back at the text in verse 32 to 35. After the description of the manna, Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it, of the manna, be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. That's a reference to the Ark of the Covenant. A jar of manna was kept in the Ark of the Covenant for generations to come. They fed on that manna in the wilderness for 40 years, 365 days a year, every, every day, all day long, so that they would remember that God had provided for them. I want to call us today to seek out and 
develop our dependence on God. I don't know what that looks like for you. If it's just enough to, to have a brother say to you, it's not all up to you. For me to stand here and say, we have all that we have, all that we provide for our families, those don't come from ourselves. Those come from God. But how do we develop our dependence on God more fully in the light of His glory? I believe we delude ourselves sometimes in believing that we're self-sufficient. And I, I think in doing that, we detract from God's glory and we add to our own detriment. I, I thought of this illustration. I don't, I don't mean for it to be inappropriate at all, but I want you to think, if someone could convince you by whatever means that there really is no God, that all this is meaningless, that this is not true, that those of you who have grown up in church, you've wasted years of your life studying a God that doesn't exist. If someone were able to convince you and you believe that there is no God, would your life change? Would the way you live change? Do we live in such a way that each day, like, thank you, Lord, for helping me through this day. Thank you for this victory. Thank you for protecting me. Thank you for protecting my child. Thank you for that moment where I was able to express loving correction to my child, where I was able to have that moment of laughter, that moment of joy, where as a husband and wife we were able to share a moment over your word or a moment of levity. Would your life change if there was no God? Or have you set up your life in such a way that God's like in a sidecar? He, he's there because you know there's hell. So we need God for that or for whatever reason. Or for religious, religion is a good social thing to have. You know, to be uh, you know, not religious is bad. If there were no God, would your life change? Or were, would, would our whole world collapse? Our entire belief structure, our, our very essence, are we dependent on God? I don't want to artificially inject that into you, but I, I want us to think especially those of us who may tend to be more self-sufficient and independent and, and be self-made men, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, American independence. You know, we, we are not dependent people. We're taught that's weakness. And God's teaching us you know, that's for His glory, that we would be dependent each day. You know, we, we frequently sing the song that starts with, Every morning that breaks, there are mercies anew. Each day God provides what we need. Each day He shows us new mercies. Each day He shows us more about His character. And in that provision, let us remember our frailties, our dependence, and our awesome, loving, gracious God. Let's bow for a moment. I've spoken mostly to believers here today. So that's what, in the text, you're speaking to God's people. But there's a linkage between this manna, between this daily bread, that there may be people here who are not yet believers in God, not yet followers of Christ. And I want to speak to you. 
In Jesus' ministry, he fed 5,000 people at one point. He fed them with fish and bread. And they came to him and they said, we want to eat this bread more. We want more of this bread. We want to eat this all the time. And Jesus taught them by saying, this is not this bread that you, you eat today. And even the manna that your forefathers ate, everyone who ate that bread is dead. But you need to partake of the bread of life. The bread that satisfies eternally. And he's speaking of himself. If you're here today and you do not yet believe in Christ, you do not yet trust in him as your Savior, if these words are weird and don't, don't make sense, that's why I prayed for you at the beginning that God would put a hunger in you, a need to be satisfied. We, we've talked today about God providing daily provision, God providing daily for his people. God extends to you and draws you unto himself and say, partake of the bread of life with, with which you will never hunger again. You won't, you won't have that hole that, that is never going to be satisfied, but we've, we have the bread of life through which we find eternal satisfaction. That's why we can talk about seeking God's glory in our suffering. That's why we can talk about asking God, what does he have for us to learn when we are in times of hunger or thirst? And I use those metaphorically. When we're in times of need, Christian, recognize your dependence on God. If you're here and you're not a believer, recognize your dependence on God. It's the same call to you today. And if you have any questions, I would love to speak with you after the service. But partake of that bread of life. Those of you who have partaken of the bread of life and trusted in Christ for your salvation, revel in our dependence on God. Revel in the fact that we need God each and every day. Our Father, I pray that this simple walk through this passage of Scripture where we see miracles happening to your people in ancient times, I pray that I've been able to bring forth just a glimpse of your glory, just like they saw your glory each day and your provision. I pray that I've been reminded and others here have been reminded of our need to depend on you, of the satisfaction that comes from not being self-made men or women, but of recognizing that you give us each day what we need and that you do test us because you love us and that we have the awesome privilege of you showing your glory to us and others around us through our suffering, through our need, whatever the case may be. We pray that you would grow that dependence. Yes, Father, I'm praying that you would make us weaker so that we would see your strength in our, in our lives. And we pray, as always, but very meaningfully today, we pray that you would be glorified in all that we do as a church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.